The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 32 to 42. It can be found on page 918 in the Black Bibles. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for reading, Judy. Great to see you all here. Welcome, particularly if this is one of your first times at Christ the King. We are so happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive right into our passage for the day. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us your word, and we pray now that you would help us to understand what it has to say about who you are and about who we are as, as people who need a Savior. And we pray that you would help us to see all that you have provided through your Son, Jesus. And we pray that you would help us that now by the power of your Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Happy New Year. Um, I'm sure many of you maybe have um, some New Year's resolutions, it's a time when lots of us are thinking about that. Uh, I hope you didn't get overexcited when you looked at my sermon title today, Lifting with Jesus. You're not going to get any kind of like powerlifting advice from me. I know you look at me and you think, surely this man has tons of powerlifting advice for me. I'm sorry, that's not happening. You're not getting that from me today. But uh, what I do think this has to say for us, particularly at a time like the new year, is many of us around this time begin to think about uh, being lifted from situations that we're in. And a lot of times that's what is behind our resolutions. We want to be lifted from maybe the, the physical fitness uh, or state that we're in or lifted from bad habits that we've developed or lifted from addictions or perhaps lifted from loneliness or inaction or depression. 
And here in this passage, we see two people who are lifted up. And we see Peter who is participating in their lifting. And so I want you to see three things for taking notes. One, who is lifted. Two, how they are lifted. And because this is like a lifting themed sermon, the gains that are made. Gains, okay? So first, the setting of this, uh, this is a, there's a short time of peace that the church is enjoying right now. Saul of Tarsus, who's been persecuting the church, has, has been um, neutralized. And Peter is now going on this tour to surrounding villages around Jerusalem. And I want you to see where God directs him, who God directs him to go and to lift up in this time. He doesn't go straight to the mayor's house. He doesn't go straight to the governor's house. Instead, he goes to the house of a man named Aeneas. And we barely know anything about Aeneas, except one really important thing. And it's that he was bedridden for eight years. And it's so easy to read that and just kind of keep on moving. But imagine eight years in your bed without modern medicine. All of your high school and college, for most of you, maybe, eight years. Eight years. That's a long time. This man named Aeneas. And then we see also another person who's in a humble and lowly and helpless estate. Dorcas. How could you not be humble with that name, right? Some of y'all may be thinking about names for your kids. Some pregnant moms out there. Little baby Dorcas. Anyway. I'm going to call her Tabitha for the rest of the sermon so I don't giggle every time. And that's what Peter calls her. So Tabitha, though, is she is somebody who is helpless. She's dead. But not only is she helpless, she has dealt with the humble and the lowly with her life. We see the people who have come to mourn her death and it's widows. It's widows who were so poor that they were dependent on Tabitha for the clothes that she made them, to dress them. And so we see that the ones who are lifted in this passage are the humble and the lowly and the helpless. But now I want you to see how they are lifted. And to illustrate this, I'll tell you a story my friend Angela told us. Angela lives in Dallas with her family, and she and her husband have been participating in a food pantry in Dallas in um, kind of a rougher neighborhood in Dallas. And they take their kids there, serve food. There was uh, a woman who came for the first time with her two kids. She pulled into the fam- with her family van into the parking spot. This is during COVID, so they kind of have some different protocols that they Kids get out of the car and they're going to get their bags and they're going to go straight back to the car. And so the mom and the two kids get out of the car and as they're walking to go get their food, somebody else jumps into the van and drives off. Yeah, somebody steals their van in broad daylight. Now, I want you to pause that story and tell me, what would your first response be? Let's say you're right there and you see it happen. What would your first response be? Now what Angela says happened next is that the pastor's wife who is there running this thing, her first response was, everybody, let's get together and pray. 
And they began praying. And this woman who, you know, is in a dire enough situation that she's showing up to a food pantry who's had her most valuable asset just stolen from her is weeping and crying with her two kids. I knew I shouldn't have come here. I knew I shouldn't have come here. They're praying and asking for God to do something and asking for God to to bring back this van somehow. And five minutes later, the van pulls back into the driveway, into the parking lot and parks. And the person who stole the van gets out and says, please don't be mad at me. I don't know why I did that. I shouldn't have done that, but I feel so bad. Please don't, don't arrest me. Don't tell anyone. Please just forgive me. And they forgave him and took the car back. And that is how prayer always works. <laughs> it, it, prayer doesn't always work that way, right? But you know what? It can. Prayer can work that way. And maybe one of the reasons we laugh so hard at that is like, We actually don't think it does. And it's one of the reasons why our first response when a situation like that happens is not prayer. Our first response often is, what is my, what, how can I react to this situation to make it better? What do I need to do? I am going to be the agent of change to fix this situation. How can I lean on my resources and my expertise and my wisdom, and my timeliness to make the situation right again. And oftentimes, what our prayerlessness indicates is a dependence on the self. We think our busyness is the solution, or our reaction, or whatever. And I want you to think about what, how do you react if something scary happens to your kid? Or if something happens that's gonna threaten your job? Or if something sad happens to your parent or to your dog, how do you react? What's your first reaction? And what we actually are doing, Christians in the room, I'm talking, we're talking together right now. What what we're actually tipping our hands when we are prayerless in those situations is that what we say we believe doesn't line up with how we actually live. What we say we believe is that God is sovereign. He's in control of everything and that he's good and that he knows what's best for us. But what we practically live out is that I'm the person who knows what's best for me. And that I'm actually, it's me being in control of the situation is where my true hope lies. But, it's not only our prayerlessness that shows our dependence on ourselves. perhaps it's our, it's our very prayers that show our dependence on ourself. When we think about lifting with Jesus, right, we think about lifting with Jesus like we would lift a stain from our carpet. We put a little, spray a little of that stain remover to help us lift. Maybe we'll spray a little bit of Jesus on my job situation. I'm gonna spray a little bit of Jesus on my marriage. I need to spray a little bit of Jesus on my kids. And I'll tell God exactly where that spot needs to be applied and what needs to happen and I'll get everything just the way it needs to go. And we often do this with our prayers. We come to God and we tell him exactly what we want him to do and how it needs to be done. And listen, this isn't totally wrong to come and to ask God for, for him to do things in our life. I, I don't want you to hear me saying that. But what I, what I do want you to hear me saying is that oftentimes when we are praying, what we're demonstrating in our requests is that 
with our very request, we think that we know what needs to happen rather than praying as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Even think about how Jesus brings his request in the garden of Gethsemane before he's about to go to the cross. You know, he asks his father, is there any other way that we can do this? He's bringing his request, but it's an open-handed request. Not my will, but your will, Father, be done. So do we come with an openness to the, to the will of God? The, the great um, missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, put it this way when he was talking about his own prayer life. He said, I used to ask God to help me. So in other words, when I started out as a Christian, what I would often do is I would ask God to help me. But then listen to how the, his progression of maturity, how this sounds. I used to ask God to help me. Then I asked if I might help him. But I ended up asking God to do his work through me. God has to do the work. God is the one who is wise and sovereign and good. And he is the one who is at work. So may he do his work through me. But in our common mindset, what we believe is the person who's at work is us. And Jesus is our co-pilot. I'm flying this plane. Or the person who's at work is us. I'm doing the lifting. Jesus is my spotter. He'll help me. Lifting with Jesus looks like me doing the heavy lifting and when I'm struggling a little bit, he helps me, he spots me. But God is so much better than that. And you may look at this passage and think, well, it looks like Peter's kind of using Jesus as a spotter. He's like kind of saying what he wants to do and then what he asks to have happen, happens. It looks like Jesus is just, or Peter's just using Jesus in this way. But I want you to see that it's actually something much better than that. What we have in this passage and what we have in, in our life is a God who, like Hudson Taylor prays, does his work through us. Um, at the beginning of the book of Acts, which we've been studying together, we see that um, Luke, who's writing Acts, he says this. In the first book, the first book he's referring to is the book of Luke. It's kind of a two-part deal. In the first book, O Theophilus, that's who he's writing to, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, the commentators that I've read are pretty unanimous in saying that when, when Luke says the work that Jesus began to do, what he's, what he's saying is Jesus hasn't stopped working. In the book of Luke, Luke, he began to do his work here on earth and now that he has ascended into heaven, he is continuing, Jesus is continuing to do the heavy lifting. He is continuing to do the work through his people. And we see this with the miracles that, Jesus, that, that Peter does and that Jesus does through Peter. And, and it's interesting, these miracles that Peter does, they almost completely line up with the miracles that Jesus has done also. So for instance, Peter heals this paralyzed man who's bedridden. In John chapter five, Jesus heals a paralyzed man who was bedridden. Jesus looks at him and says, get up, take your mat and go home. And Peter almost verbatim says, get up and make your bed. That thing you've been lying on, take care of it. Get up and it's not, that thing doesn't own you anymore. It doesn't, get up and let's go. Jesus in Mark 5, just as Peter, comes into a room filled with people who are weeping. 
Just like in Mark 5, Peter tells them the, the weepers to leave. Jesus does the same. And Jesus, in Mark 5, comes to this young woman, Jairus' daughter, and he says, Talitha kumi, in Aramaic, which means, little girl, rise up, or get up. And Peter almost says the exact same words. Instead of Talitha, he's one letter off, Tabitha kumi, Tabitha, get up. See, Peter is mirroring the ministry of Jesus. And it's probably nice he didn't say Dorcas, get up. Tabitha, get up. He's mirroring the ministry of Jesus. And not only is he mirroring the ministry, he's completely dependent on Jesus to do the ministry. And so before raising Aeneas, Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. Not I heal you. Jesus is doing this. Jesus is healing you, Aeneas. Before he raises Tabitha, what does he do? He drops to his knees and he prays. That's his first reaction, is prayer. Because no one is rising from the dead unless Jesus does it. Peter was ministering as Christ had himself ministered and now he's dependent completely on Jesus to do the work. And my question is, what about us? Do we shape our ministry after Jesus' ministry? Do we depend on him or do we depend on ourselves? What's, what does our prayer life indicate? What's your prayer life indicate or lack thereof? Because our only hope is that he lifts, that he does the lifting. So I used to, um, I used to lift weights with my friend. He's actually in the room, Joe Cavanaugh. Joe, give a little wave just because I want people to see how big you are. You're just this muscly guy. Okay, that's Joe Cavanaugh. Now, I want you to, I want you to know this, okay? So... The most terrifying day of my week was when I would go over to the Kavanaugh's house and Joe would want to get his max bench press. Because guess who was spotting? Me. And there, there was really nothing I could do. He's putting all these weights on and I'm just kind of standing there. Just, you know what all I could do is pray. That's all I could do. Because if he wasn't getting that thing off of his chest, I was, I was just going to have to go and tell Amy, like, we got to call the ambulance or something. I don't know, like, sorry, you're, he's pinned. He's not getting up. Y'all, that's, that's what lifting with Jesus is like. He has to do all the lifting. He's got to do it. And you know what, though? You know what's so good about Jesus? He wants to. He welcomes you to do it. You know what Jesus says in Matthew 11? Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Are you pressed down with a lot of weight? Jesus wants you to come to him. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And this is so beautiful. Some of you may have read the book, Gentle and Lowly. We were giving it away earlier this year. And one of the things it says in this book, there's only one time in the entire Bible where Jesus tells you what his heart is like where he gives you an insight and says, this is what my heart's like. And it's while he's talking about people who are heavy laden and feel like they can't lift. He says, come to me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That is what God's heart is like. He's humble and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we lift with Jesus, 
he's doing the lifting, even when it feels hard. He is doing it, not us. And that's our hope. Our hope is that our hope is not in us. Thank goodness. Our hope is in Jesus. He lifts with the lowly among us. When I was in seminary, we had a missionary that actually the, uh, the, the Presbyterian church that I attended in, in Austin supported. He came and he spoke to our uh, seminary class and afterwards I asked him if he'd uh, go get a burger with me. So this missionary and I are sitting at a, at a Whataburger in Austin and his, uh, the mission work that he was doing, he was working with a, uh, a ministry called uh, the Wycliffe Foundation, I think, Wycliffe something. Um, basically what they do is they take the Bible and translate it into languages of people who don't yet have the Bible in their language. And um, this missionary was working in China, in northern China, with a people group of nine million people who don't have the Bible written in their language. So we're, getting a, we're eating our burgers, and I was like, all right, tell me like the missionary story you're afraid to tell people because they won't believe you. He's like, really? I was like, yeah, yeah, just give, tell me. He said, well, these people in China that we're trying to translate the Bible for, there's 20 Christians out of 9 million people in that group. And we, we want to get them the Bible. And he said, but those, the, the way that, that those 20 Christians have grown, it really started with a little girl, a 10-year-old girl. Her family was the only Christian family. And this 10-year-old girl was sent to go and care for her new cousin when um, her aunt had a baby. And that's just what they did in that culture. Her uncle, though, was an alcoholic and kind of a terror in their house. And he was an angry person. He was covered with eczema from head to toe that kind of just tormented him. One night, the uncle comes in late, drunk, with his friends, and they're making fun of this little girl because they've seen her worshiping and it seems so strange. And so the friends say, have her, have her say a prayer for you, kind of jokingly. And so the little girl prays. And the next morning, her uncle wakes up and his skin is completely clear. And now he's freaked out. What did you do to me? He asked this little girl. And she says, I prayed in Jesus' name that God would heal you. He's like, that's ridiculous. That kind of stuff doesn't happen. You know, I don't believe in that. Next morning, wakes up, eczema's back. And then he comes and he asks her, now broken, repentant, tell me who Jesus is. And he becomes a Christian. And the next day he was healed. Now again, that doesn't happen every day. But Jesus can do it. And you know who he does stuff like that through? The lowly. A 10-year-old girl who's in this horrible family situation, who's so powerless. God lifts with the lowly. And it's sometimes we can read a story like this and think like, man, I bet Peter was like, God, he was doing miracles like that? I bet, I bet someone might probably bought him a jet so they could fly him around and do miracles like that. And he probably got a big TV ministry going and like maybe some Instagram followers. And I bet like people were throwing money at him so he could do more of his stuff. You know what? Peter had been totally, totally humbled before this story. 
after he had denied Jesus three times and Jesus restores him. And you know what? Peter didn't get a lot out of doing stuff like this. You know what Peter got? Crucified. Peter got crucified upside down by the Roman Empire. Peter was simply, humbly asking Jesus to do the lifting. And Jesus does. Jesus can lift. And I want you to see the gains that are made. And we can see a passage like this and really easily miss what the greatest miracle is. But the greatest miracle in both of these passages is that in both towns, people come to believe in Jesus. And it's real easy for us to not think of that as the greatest miracle, but it is. Jesus kind of tells us that. In Luke 10, when the disciples have done like these like crazy miracles and they come back and they're rejoicing, they've cast demons out of people. You know what Jesus says? Don't rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that God has saved you. Because if what Paul says in Romans 3 is true, Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. If nobody seeks for God, then how can anyone become a Christian? It's because God seeks after us. God in his power lifts us, not because of what we've done, but because of the goodness and the grace of King Jesus. And that is a miracle that he would save a wretch and a sinner like me and like any of you. People come to faith. If you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus, all you do to know him is to humble yourself, to admit your weakness and your need and ask him for help and he will lift you up. He will lift you up to, to an eternal hope an eternal hope that this story is a glimpse of. Can you imagine what it must have been like to see Aeneas stand up on those feeble, shriveled legs? He probably wasn't solemn about it. He probably was laughing and dancing. Can you imagine? I mean, it's kind of a hilarious story. Get up and make your bed, right? Like, get up. You can stand. You know what else was probably hilarious? Um, ladies, I have someone I want you to meet. Dorcas is back. They probably weren't like, hello, Dorcas. Good to see you again. They would have rejoiced. They probably would have laughed. It would have been joyful. And y'all, this is a foretaste of the glory that awaits anyone who has put their faith in Jesus that we will be risen not only to a new life, a new spiritual life in him in this life, but a new physical life in the world to come. We believe this is a preview that one day that Jesus will gain us into a new resurrected life. Can you imagine the laughter? That is going to be hilarious. Raising from the dead. When, when Jesus tells the people that he's gonna raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, they laugh at him. Because someone raising from the dead is hilarious. Can you imagine now that day? The day that we will see the cripple walking again, dancing again, the mute singing, 
the deaf in still wonder at the thunderous sounds coming to both of their ears, filling up their minds and their hearts. Can you imagine those whose minds have been worn with illness or age, suddenly sharper and wittier than ever before? Can you imagine their jokes? Can you imagine their stories, their laughter, or the blind basking in the light that sharpens into color and angles and shape and shadow and beauty? The depressed rejoicing, the chronically anxious finally at peace, finally safe, the lonely in perfect communion, friendship with no threat to ever be alone or estranged again. It's a preview of our resurrection. And Jesus does the lifting. He does it. And he will do it. He is coming again. Let's pray. Father, we give you um, all praise and thanks for your son, King Jesus. And Lord, I ask that you would make us like him, make us like the true Christ the King who laid aside his crown, who humbled himself, who was gentle and lowly in heart. Would you make our church like your son and make us as individuals like your son? Um, Would you make us those who participate in the work that you are doing to lift the humble and the lowly just as you have lifted us? And we pray that you would do this for the good of our neighbor and for our world, but, but also for your glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.